0: This is the Darcy Giroux Podcast, episode 14. Today, my guest is Jacques Boudreau, leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada. We're going to talk about what a holistic approach to the COVID pandemic would have looked like. Jacques Boudreau. Welcome back to the Darcy Drill podcast. How are things in your world? Good. We are going to the polls tomorrow. So oh. it's always a bit exciting. Tomorrow for the Ontario election. That's correct. Okay. Well, I don't think this episode will air until next week, but uh, so people know we are recording this on June 1st. Okay. COVID still seems to be dominating headlines, and I know you have some things on your mind that you want to address regarding the last couple of years. Let's start with this idea of following the science, which has become this weird cult-like slogan, uh, which makes no sense to a normal person in the context that people are currently using it. Uh, how, how do you respond when someone tells you to follow the science? Right. Well,
1: part I want to do here is I want to equip people who may not have a science background. Um, I have a degree in actuarial science. It's of course very math and statistics, uh, heavy, but I've had exposure to you know, first year university physics and chemistry. And so anyway. It's very clear that there's a very basic misunderstanding of science. The first thing I would point out is that science is a process. It's not an answer, which most people don't get. And what I mean by this is that we're talking here about the scientific method and the scientific method in terms of the theory is, it's pretty easy. The application is, is difficult and it simply goes as, as follows. If you through anecdotal evidence, observation, you believe that the world works in a certain way, that becomes your hypothesis. And then it's incumbent upon the person to go and do an experiment to test it. Now, and this is the crucial part. If the experiments results are in line with the hypothesis, you have not proven the hypothesis. All it does is it allows you to continue to use the hypothesis until possibly something comes along that actually tells you your hypothesis was wrong. This has happened countless times in science where there was an understanding, this is our hypothesis, it seems to be the best thing that we've got going forward. And eventually you come to a point where you say, well, this hypothesis doesn't work anymore. So that's the first thing, right? I mean, true scientists, are usually quite humble and the good ones are always the ones who are trying the darnest to invalidate their hypothesis right they're, they're trying to poke holes into it now having said that it's certainly true that we have hypotheses that have been they've been verified in some ways or repeatedly um, through you know history or applications to be to be true and they become uh, wildly accepted. but in a in a rapidly uh, evolving science like vi- virology or immunization, where there's a lot there's not a lot of of experience, you can see things changing. And in fact, I mean, you all recall that early in, um, say, March or April of 2020, Teresa Tam had said, don't wear a mask because they're useless. And suddenly they became, no, you must wear one. And, and if you can wear two, that's even better. I mean, it was it was a very fluid environment. And I again, I don't blame people for changing their minds in response to changing evidence. What I object to is people who don't have the humility to recognize that this is the best we got right now, but we could have it wrong, right? So, so when people tell you follow the science, they don't know what they're talking about, because again, the science is a process. It's not an answer. It's not like the skies open up and you got a voice that tells you this is the way things are. Um, if, if you're old enough, like I am, uh, just to give an example to people, are eggs a good thing to consume or a bad thing? Well, I'm old enough to have seen. I think something like three or four reversal. I mean, first it was good then it was bad. Then it was good again, bad again. And now we're sort of good again. Well, why is that? Well, another thing that people ought to be aware of is that there's an awful lot of bad science out there. And by bad science, I mean experiments that are poorly designed. Uh, there's a a misunderstanding of the statistical uh, analysis that often comes out of this. Uh, it's it's surprisingly shocking to see how many uh, scientists get the the, the, the the confusion between correlation and causation I mean I could go on and on and I've seen again my share of studies that upon scrutiny uh, just just fall apart and then you obviously you have to be very careful of the um, the conclusion that people reach right so so, so my point to people would be, when people say, "say follow the science," I mean you could they could you basically repeat what I've said is that it's a process, it's not an answer, and if it hasn't been around for very long, hasn't been tested very often, you are perfectly entitled to be skeptical.
0: Mm-hmm, for sure. Now, the word scientism comes up a lot, and scientism is defined as an excessive belief in the power of scientific knowledge and techniques, uh, which is like, okay, I get people trust actual science, but scientism also represents a type of logical fallacy in that the scientific process itself involves very rigorous uh, skepticism and the understanding that Different assumptions can distort how someone interprets data, Uh, but why don't you tell us your thoughts on scientism?
1: Okay. So I think your description of scientism is quite accurate. It's basically people who believe that the only way to get to the truth on anything is through science. But that very premise, in many ways, is self-defeating because you can't use science to demonstrate whether your premise is accurate or not. And there are some very simple examples to demonstrate that that's the case. Certainly, the scientific method would be and has been very useful in developing nuclear bombs. Should you use a bomb now that you've built one? You know, science is completely neutral on that, right? It doesn't doesn't tell you whether you should or not. So you better look at you know, philosophy, ethics, religion, or, or whatever. I mean, there are other fields that would help you decide whether you should use it or not. Right. So, I mean, I could come up with other examples like this, but it's the real danger that, um, science is the only thing that matters, but to go back to COVID and, and this is one element where really, really got it wrong is an epidemiologist who tells you that, you know, we have to shut down the economy because his model is saying, well, we're going to have you know, 3,000 deaths and 50,000 people hospitalized or whatever, is, is making a judgment call based on a very narrow, and I would say not, not, not just a, a scientific uh, call, but one that is actually very narrow in scope because the only thing it's looking at is COVID deaths and hospitalization. But has he talked to psychiatrists psychiatrist to get a sense of, the damage that it would do to the mental health of many people? I don't think so. But more broadly, in terms of outside of science, do they know anything about economics in terms of what the economic impact of a shutdown would be, right? There, you have to turn to economics to try to understand what the impact would be. Education, you know, would that person know anything about the educational delay that have taken place as a result of of the lockdowns. I mean, the list goes on and on in, in terms of all the aspects of life that were impacted by, by the lockdown, where
0: it seemed to have been unidimensional in terms of decision-making. Yeah, so it's, it's hard to determine exactly how much economic damage was caused by lockdowns, but it's obvious that it was quite a lot uh it's even harder to measure the psychological damage and the type of social decay that has happened because of these policies um now i think you advocate for a more holistic type approach can you explain that to us
1: yeah so this ties into what i just explained is that i think that at the table in terms of you know elected officials making a decision you know, by all means, epidemiologists should have been at the table. Their input was very, very important. But, you know, I mentioned psychiatrists to provide some input in terms of mental health. Um, educators to talk about educational delay and what the impact would be. You need um, oncologists who would come in and say, well, you know, we this could result in people having undiagnosed cancers and And if they're undiagnosed, of course, by the time they finally find out that they have one, treatment is delayed. So that has an impact as well. Same thing with cardiovascular diseases. There could be obviously things like, you know, putting, as we've done, putting people out of business. Like people who spend their lifetime building a small or medium-sized company and suddenly they can't make ends meet. Um, You know, I mean, the list. So so again, you you would need economists at the table, you would need psychiatrists, you would need other medical professional. I'm sure I'm missing, you know, uh, off the top of my head, other segment of the population, but holistic means that you have to look at the whole picture and you have to look at the whole picture over a long period of time. Uh, People who have read uh, the great Henry Hazlitt's book, Economics in One Lesson, I mean, that's the one lesson that he's trying to get across to people. You know, the point being that if you narrow the scope enough and you measure it over a very short period of time, you can justify just about anything, which is something that governments do all the time. But a holistic approach means you got to consider all aspects of life and you got to do it over a long period of time. And I think all governments have, I mean, it's just terrible how badly they've done this. I mean, they've basically as far as I can tell, turned over the whole decision-making process to epidemiologists. And again, it's not like they don't have a voice. They do, but it should be one of many voices and, and something that they didn't do. I mean, I have a little theory that explains why they did it this way. I think that the optics in this country would have been terrible for provincial premiers if we had found ourselves with a situation similar to that of Italy in March of 2020, where physicians had to triage people and decide who was going to get care and who wasn't. I mean, any government in power while that happened would have been turfed out during the next election. But notice again, this is for their well being, not the well being of people, in the sense that they're willing to sacrifice short-term gain from their perspective for long-term losses. And, and this, now I'm going to quote Bastia, to me, it's, it's very much the seen and unseen, right? I mean, you see a healthcare system that can't cope, um, that's the scene. What is unseen is say cancer patients spread over a, a wide area over many, many years. And that doesn't make the news, right? So people are unaware of that. So these are the types of things that, you know, governments would do in order to, you
0: know, protect themselves at our expense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Did you want to get into any of these kind of unintended consequences? Um, I know I had Keith McIntyre on just the other day and, you know, one of the main big things in BC is the opioid crisis that's just killing, you know, an incredible amount of people in British Columbia. And um, I know you're in Ontario, Can you so can you give us kind of a perspective on, you know, what some of these other, th- these, the unintended consequences of these lockdowns and these policies have been in Ontario? I think,
1: um, overdoses are, are up quite a bit as well. So that, that is certainly one. Um, another one that's a bit, also a bit of a pet peeve of mine is the, you know, and coming from the Trudeau government, this doesn't, doesn't surprise me at all, but it's this idea that money is the same thing as production, as I've mentioned before, what makes our lives better is not the money per se, it's what we can get with the money, right? Lodging or clothing or a car or it's all the stuff that, that make our lives better. Money, you know, is supposed to be a, a medium of exchange and a store of value. So to, to the extent that you get paid when you work, it is to um store the the, the production that you've done. But the, you need to have production first. And what we've done, of course, is to, we, we've completely decimated the production. I mean, we basically told very, very, um, very disturbingly, we've told people that their jobs were not essential. You know, as people have said, if your job allows you to put food on the table, it is essential, regardless of what some, you know, government official tells you. So, you know, we've decimated the production in all kinds of et- uh, areas, which, you know, it's probably contributed to some of the overdoses that we've seen. I mean, you, the number, the amount of despair, the amount of depression has gone through the roof, right? Um, another unintended consequence, and admittedly difficult to measure, is that human beings are social animals. If you now lock up people, uh, or, you know, force them to stay unable to have relationship with other people, what kind of damage does that do? I suspect a great deal. Um, I, you know, I was talking about educational delays. I mean, now we, we are seeing anecdotal evidence of early childhood educators moving the, um, the, the, the sort of the benchmark to establish whether your child is developing properly because they've seen a massive regression on the part of many children right i mean they used to be able to say well you should be able to a child a child should be, should be walking between the age of nine months and 12 months or something like that well now it's been my understanding has been deferred to 18 months now exactly how does that come about I, you know i'm not a childhood educator but clearly there's been a change in our interaction with people um know, exposure of children to other children, which I suspect has a a tremendous um, impact. And now if you can't do that anymore, I mean, I'm I'm told the children can't recognize smiles because they haven't seen one because of masks. Um, What else can I come up with in terms of unintended consequences? I mean, okay, um, the government printed a whole bunch of money. So now we have more money and fewer goods because... Again, we've decimated the, the the production. So there's less supply and more demand. Well, what do you think is going to happen? Well, prices are going to go up. Well, okay, unintended consequences. If you are, as I am now, a retiree with a fixed um pension, like one that's not indexed, well, every year that goes by at six, seven, eight percent inflation rate, I'm falling behind. So I'm going to be worse off. So there's going to be millions of Canadians who are going to be, uh, feeling the pinch on this with all, again, the, 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 right. I mean, we, we are a consumer driven economy. Well, if seniors can't spend as much on the sort of the non-essential, I mean, if more of your money now has to go to pay for food and gasoline, well, you have less money to go on a cruise. So maybe the cruise
0: industry is going to suffer. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's on and on and on like this. Absolutely. Um, I know the big one or the big two probably in Alberta are always, uh, suicide and, and divorce. And I, and I think some of those are, uh, Alberta might be, a, kind of a statistic anomaly because historically it's a little more sensitive to the boom and bust cycle,
1: Well, I suspect it's gone up everywhere simply because if you, if you destroy someone's business, you have a serious problem. I mean, for, for the listeners who are interested, I would point them to a study that came out, I think it was in January of this year by Douglas Allen at Simon Fraser university. And what they did was to calculate the overall cost of the lockdowns compared to the benefits. So note that I'm, I'm not saying that it was, wasn't without benefits. I mean, it certainly saved, um, some lives. However, it's interesting to note. And, and I think it's a testimony to how careful they were in their study, because you know, the range I'm going to give you is very, very large, but the number of life years, okay, so this is not life, but the number of life years that Um, In terms of cost uh, that were taken on for every life year that was saved is between 3.7 and something like in the high 100. Okay, so it's a very, very wide range. But my point is, even if you were to take the low end number, which is 3.7, and let's go with that for the time being. He's saying that the lockdowns cost 3.7 life years for every life year that was spared. Well, that's a terrible ratio. Terrible Absolutely. ratio. Absolutely, Yeah, yeah, it is. Because, you know, another thing I think that people, um, they, they and, and you know, I say this like I'm in my 60s, okay? So I, I'm not quite, you know, elderly and frail, uh, but, but I'm sort of, you know, in an age group, I'm a seniors now, uh, I think that allows me to at, at least have the credibility to say that my life is not worth as much as that of my grandsons. I mean, I, I don't understand why people, because some people do that a life is a life is a life, right? That of a 60 year old with that of a three year old. I mean, I don't get it. I, I mean, I would I would gladly give my life for my children and my grandchildren. And, and yet the fact that we've used um, you know, my kids and my grandkids as sandbags to protect me is, in my opinion, completely immoral, And right? And I say this because another thing, you know, sort of go back to the so-called science is this complete inability to recognize that COVID had a drastically different impact on the very old with comorbidities with people who are young. I mean... My, my three-year-old grandson, or the other two who are even younger, I mean, they were not remotely at risk from COVID. Now, I am, and, and that's why, you know, I, I, made, um, I made a risk assessment that's saying, on balance, I will take this, this vaccine, even though it's, you know, I don't think it was all that tested, certainly not over a long period of time, because on balance, yes, I, I could do very badly. But that's not the case for my children. Um, And my children should have been allowed. And and actually, let me go back again to the fact that, you know, I'm 61 is I will say to the young people out there because I've been there. Youth is fleeting. It goes by fairly quickly. And I think it's an absolute outrage that, again, I look at at my kids that they weren't allowed to travel in, in sort of. Some of the peak years in terms of the you know the energy and the the you know the ability uh, to to travel, the fact that that was denied them is unconscionable. so mm-hmm. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, so you know this this leads into the next question I actually wanted to ask you um, you know bef- before the pandemic people would often use the hypothetical case of a pandemic to criticize the libertarian position. But after seeing what we've just been through, I think a lot of people are now rethinking their arguments. I, I personally couldn't be prouder of the libertarian position against lockdowns and mandates. Uh, but even something like the Great Barrington Declaration, which seems like pretty common sense stuff that mainstream people could get behind was kind of tossed aside. Uh, Can you give us your thoughts on that? Right.
1: So the great Barrington declaration, which I signed very early on, um, first of all, the the three people who started it are prominent scientists. Uh, I mean, I think one is at Oxford, another one at, um, Princeton, I think, uh, and one at uh, Stanford. I mean, um, very prominent people. And they recognized early on what I just described in terms of the danger of COVID, depending on your age, for example, or comorbidity. And what the great Barrington said was, let's not go lockdown, but rather let's do a targeted approach to safekeeping. The people at risk. I mean, can you imagine how much money we would have saved had we done that, right? If you say, okay, the evidence is now pretty clear. This is a non-event for young people. Um, but, you know, if you're above 80 and you've got comorbidities, you know, well, we better take some precaution to help you. I mean, a targeted approach would have cost a tiny fraction of what we went through. I mean, we wouldn't have, you know, destroyed businesses we wouldn't have destroyed supply we you know people would have been allowed to to continue to live their lives um, and, and like to me it was so compelling their approach that again i i signed it very early on and i i have supported it um, now i mean from a libertarian point of view the the one thing that i do want to to stress is that first of all I think that allowing people to decide for themselves, the level of caution they need to exercise is the right thing to do. Uh, not everybody's got the same risk assessment. People as individuals value different things. I mean, they they, they will put a, again, a, um, a relative value on things that will differ from that of your your neighbor, and that's perfectly fine, but it, it's not one's, well, I, I, you know, to, to give you an example, um, yeah, kind of a funny story in the depth of the, of COVID, this was probably in January, I was going for my daily walk and I came across an, an older lady with a dog who was walking in the opposite direction as I was on the sidewalk and she saw me coming, she picked up her dog. And moved to the street to continue to her walk. And of course, when she she, because I, I stayed on the on the sidewalk, and you know, she didn't say a word, but she had dagger eyes, right? I mean, she was really, really upset that I had not moved off. Now, my point is clearly her risk assessment is that she believed for reasons I don't quite understand. Certainly the CDC had made it clear that catching COVID in open air, when you are some distance apart from other person was basically close to zero. Um, so, so certainly for my risk, my risk assessment was, you know, I'm quite willing to cross path with this woman on the sidewalk, I don't think I'm at risk. But that's me, right? She clearly had a different risk assessment, and she behaved accordingly. Fine. My point is, by all means, she can do what she thinks is best for her, but I should not be compelled to act in a way to reflect her fears, right? If she has fears, it's up to her to decide how to act. And of course, we've turned this on its head completely, because now it was like, we're going to treat everybody based on the fear that somebody in government has established for the rest of us, you know, completely at odds with the libertarian uh, viewpoint. Now, Here I want to bring in the non-aggression principle as a way to guide us because again, there's there's been a terrible, terrible misunderstanding on the part of our dear elected officials. It became pretty clear quite early that being vaccinated didn't stop one from getting another round of I mean catching COVID again, and to be able to transmit it. Yet the narrative that we get from the government is completely the opposite. Like they, they behave as if, if you're vaccinated, then, Hey, you could get on the plane, you can do, you know right. But the point that's simply like, if you're vaccinated or not is irrelevant. What matters is, do you have COVID or not? It, you know, you listen to Trudeau and what you get is that when it comes time to boarding a plane. It is perfectly fine for you to board a plane because you're vaccinated, even though you have COVID at that moment, but it would be totally inappropriate for you to board a plane if you're unvaccinated, but you don't have COVID. I mean, it's this sounds to me like a Monty Python skip is so absurd, right? It makes no sense whatsoever, and yet that's what we've done. So, you know, from a libertarian point of view, I think what should have, the emphasis should have been... We don't care about your vaccination status. We care about whether you have the disease at this point, because, you know, it would be inappropriate. In fact, I would say a violation of the non-aggression principle, if somebody with the disease decided to commingle with people, right? I mean, now you're committing a a potential act of aggression. So the, the whole emphasis would have been on testing, right? I mean, like, think about these gyms or restaurants. Right. The, the emphasis should have been we don't care about your, your vaccination status because if you're if you're vaccinated, you can still have COVID and you can still pass it on. But right now we're gonna test you. You pass the test, boo, please come in. That that would have been a far, far better way of doing things than this sort of you know, box checking exercise of whether you can show a QR code to people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um so I just one more question. Um because just about in every episode, the Canadian uh, healthcare system comes up. I've considered uh, changing this to a, a, a podcast committed exclusively to the Canadian healthcare system. But, uh, uh, you know, and what, what comes up is how this system was broken before COVID. Um, give us your opinion on how the failures of the public health care system led to the terrible decision-making we saw throughout the pandemic. Well, the first thing
1: I will say is that the current healthcare system is run without any margins whatsoever. And I'll give you an example. There's, um, a suburb of Toronto called Brampton in 2018. So this is prior to COVID, they declared an emergency situation because their hospitals were completely overwhelmed by your run of the mill flu season, again, pre COVID, right, just a, a particularly bad flu season, completely overwhelmed. We have no margin to speak of, I'm not aware of any industry that runs on that basis. I mean, everybody usually runs something with some kind of spare capacity. And here, Again, I want to stress to people that I am not advocating, you know, I used to work in the life insurance industry. The life insurance industry's got all kinds of margins for things going bad, but the margins are not so large that if something absolutely catastrophic were to happen that the industry would be able to pay all claims. I mean that that would render the whole thing completely unworkable, but you need to have some margins, right? I mean there's all kinds of statistical analysis that can be done where you you know you can develop sort of standard deviations and you know calculate probabilities that things are going to exceed a certain threshold, but I don't think any of this is done. So to go back to a point I made earlier, if you have no spare capacity and you got a new pathogen coming along, well, you can see why people would say, well, you know, we gotta shut down everything because we're gonna be overwhelmed. I don't think that a publicly run system has the capacity to adapt. I mean, we continue to make it illegal for people to provide certain services on a private basis. I mean, I can easily, easily imagine an entrepreneur, like say a, a physician and possibly even a, a retired physician who would say, Here, here's an opportunity for me to help people while, you know, making some money from this. And I'm going to set up, you know, a clinic or um, I, I'm going to come and offer my services to to people who have been, uh, you know, they're desperately looking for some care. I mean, one has to be very careful to always limit what we imagine the market can do because of one's lack of imagination. I am I'm the first one to admit that I am not the most creative person, so I don't. You know, I'm often quite floored by some of the um, uh, the innovation that takes place. I mean, there are some very, very innovative, very creative people out in the world. I mean, I um, you know, I think of uh, Elon Musk and the stuff that he does, or the things he comes up with, or uh, Steve Jobs. But but those are the people. You can't if you lack imagination, you can't imagine the world through your your limited scope. This is where you you have to step back and be willing to trust that there are people out there who are more creative, more innovative than you are and assume that some of them would step up and come up with some solutions. I'm not saying they would be perfect, but it would have been way better again if we had allowed the free market to come to the rescue and say, "All right, we we got some some people here who've come up with this design here where we can set up alternative clinics or, you know, things of that sort to to help us out." But that it's not even legal in this country, if you can imagine it. So, no, we, we have a system that's not, it's not well run. It has no spare capacity. Couldn't deal with a crisis like this, short of, again, shutting down everything, which is, you know,
0: as we said, in aggregate cause more harm than good. Okay, Jacques, well, it is always a pleasure having you on, and I'm, I'm sure we'll see you again very soon. All right. Thank you very much. That was Jacques Boudreau, leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada. You can follow him on Twitter at VoteBoudreau. And to make sure you never miss an episode of the Darcy Giroux podcast, subscribe on Substack.